I felt a little like Superman back there behind the curtain trying to quickly change my clothes and um, so I have a new respect for, for Superman. Um, and speaking of superhuman feats, we are going to open the book of Revelation this morning, um, which is a challenging thing, and so I invite you to be in prayer with me over these next few weeks. Uh, you know, a, 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 a famous author once said that, that Revelation is a famous book in which St. John the Divine concealed all that he knew. It's no surprise, Its pages tell of beasts, of six-winged creatures covered with eyes, a a pregnant woman and a dragon, just to name a few of the many images. Interpreting Revelation can be a bit like reading code language without being given a deciphering code to figure it out. So most of us, including many preachers, avoid it because we don't understand it. But not everyone avoids it. For better or worse, the the book of Revelation has become a very public book. It's interpreted and it's misinterpreted on a daily basis. The rumors of great world-ending wars abound, and so it fascinates people. We live in an age of pandemics and catastrophic natural disasters, and so we try to find meaning and fulfillment of those events from the book of Revelation. It's easy to look at the book of Revelation and to look at the events that are occurring around us today and to wonder if we might actually be finally in the last days. If the events that are predicted in this book might be coming true even in our days. And so we're drawn to this book. As Christians who are committed to the authority and the infallibility of the Word of God, what do we do with Revelation? How are we to handle it without mishandling it? How do we interpret it without misinterpreting it? Well, I believe the answer to that question lies at least in the beginning in understanding the type of book that Revelation is. Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. If you've never heard that term before, let me help you understand what that means. If, if you went into Barnes & Noble this afternoon in search of a book, one of the first things you would have to determine is what the genre of that book was. Are you going to look for fiction, for nonfiction, for historical? And once you select a book from that category, you probably understand that you would read it in a different way than you would read a book from another department within Barnes & Noble. For instance, if you're a fan of science fiction books, and you pick that book up and you expect to read it as being historically and scientifically correct and accurate, you're going to be disappointed. You'll suspend reality while you're reading a science fiction book. You'll allow your imagination to run wild. In the same way, you expect a biography to be an accurate rendering of the events that you're reading about. You want it to be truthful, to be factual. And how about a self-help book? Have you picked up a book on the topic of managing your anger, and then you wanted it to elicit romantic feelings, you might be very disappointed. So you need to understand Scripture in the same way. There are books that are full of narrative events, like the Gospels. There are didactic teaching books, like the Epistles. There are poetic books, like the Psalms. I I love them, but I'll be honest with you, I don't understand poetry. And so you probably, in my short time, won't hear me preaching much from the Psalms. There are, I heard a couple of awes over there, I'm sorry. You can put that on your pastoral search uh, survey if you'd like. 
And then there are apocalyptic books, books like Daniel and Revelation. These books are figurative, they're cryptic, they're symbolic, they're metaphorical, they're imaginative. In the first century, Jews and Christians were familiar with this type of literature, but the reality is you and I aren't so familiar with it. The images in this book come from the Old Testament. They also come from some intertestamental literature that falls between the Old and New Testaments that we're not familiar with, and from Near Eastern mythology. And if you're anything like me, understanding narrative passages or didactic literature, that doesn't take a lot of work. It comes natural to me, but apocalyptic literature confuses me. And here's one more really important thing to understand about this book. Some of the recipients were under a lot of persecution because of their faith. And so the prophecy that's written in this code language that only Christians understood because of their knowledge of Scripture, if this prophecy got intercepted by a Roman soldier, it wouldn't put the Christian at risk because the Roman soldier would have no idea what he was reading. Does that make sense? Now, before we actually open the book, let me give you a few more introductory facts. I told you about the genre. Let me briefly tell you about the basics, about who wrote it, when it was written, who it was written to, and what the purposes were. First of all, scholars believe it was written by the Apostle John, the beloved John, the disciple of Jesus, the one who was with Jesus at his death, the one who went to the tomb the morning of his resurrection and cared for Jesus' mother, Mary, after Jesus died. John is believed to have written this book from a cave on the tiny island of Patmos where he was exiled. Scholars believed it was penned around the end of the first century. Jesus had gone, was gone for around 60 years or so, and the witnesses of his life were beginning to die. And Judaism and Christianity were becoming increasingly differentiated. And this was causing some problems. You see, Rome had this thing about their emperors. They believed that the people ought to worship their emperors. And failing to do so could lead to the end of your life. Well, the Jews, they had a long-standing agreement with the Romans that they were exempt from worshiping the emperor. Now the Christians were beginning to be recognized as their own distinct faith group, and they didn't have the same protection that was afforded to the Jews. And so when they wouldn't worship the emperor, it began to cause problems for them. We're going to come back to that emperor worship more in the weeks to come. As far as the recipients, it's critical that you understand that this book had an audience for whom it was immediately written. In fact, if you're going to truly understand Revelation, you have to relate it first to the days in which it was written. While it may have many and does, I believe, have multiple fulfillments and speaks of the end of the ages, it's got to, first of all, be understood within the first century. And I think that's something that Christians often fail to do. We take Scripture out of its context and immediately apply it to our lives without understanding the context within which it was written. And when we have that context, it gives us so much more uh, understanding of what God was intending through the Scripture. So the people to whom it was written were a part of seven churches. We don't know why there were just seven churches. We don't know why it was these seven churches in particular that were chosen to be addressed. But, but these seven churches, they all have different issues, and they've responded to their faith in Christ in different ways. The seven churches, interestingly, are also in a logical geographical progression. So if you were to carry this letter from one church to another, you would have carried them in the way that they're listed in the book of Revelation. And finally, 
Here's the why, and I would suggest at least two purposes, and, I, and, and definitely not limited to these two, but these two are overarching purposes, I believe, of the book of Revelation. If you have your sermon outlines on the back of your bulletin this morning, you can fill them in. First, to show God's sovereignty in history and promise of the culmination of all things in him. No matter how difficult life gets, Revelation serves as a reminder that God is still on the throne, that God is still in control, and in the end, everything and everyone will submit to him. My dad was a huge Southern gospel fan, and I remember whenever we'd ride in a vehicle together, it would always be tuned. When he got satellite radio, boy, was he ever happy, because there was a Southern gospel station, and it's all we could listen to. One of the favorite, his favorite songs um, that I remember him listening to went something like this. I've read the back of the book, and we win. There ain't no need to worry about it if we're born again. I've read the back of the book, and we win. Well, Revelation reminds us that while evil may win the day, it will not win the war because God is still in control. God is sovereign over all of history, and we live with the promise that all things will culminate with him. The second main purpose, I believe, of Revelation is to encourage the faithful to remain faithful even in persecution. Revelation is meant to be an encouragement. You see, Revelation is not just about how things will end, but how things are going now. The danger in interpreting Revelation is that many times people fail to understand that it meant something to those who received it. It's not just a picture of the future, though it is that. It's a book that was meant to inspire, to embolden, and to encourage those who were suffering in the first century and those who are suffering today. It's not just about the final outcome of life, though it is. It's also about how things are going today and now. So before we dig into that first message to the first church, I need to also admit to you that I don't understand a lot of the book of Revelation, okay? So if you're prepared to come and begin to ask me questions about, well, where's Russia in this, and where's Persia, and what are the, what's the bear and the dragon, please don't ask me those things, because your guess is as good as mine, okay? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. I found this quote this week, and I had to laugh. Charles Spurgeon wrote, a man says to me, can you explain the seven trumpets of the Revelation? Spurgeon said, no, but I can blow one in your ear and warn you to escape from the wrath to come. Well, this sermon, isn't gonna, sermon series isn't going to get into the trumpets. It's also not going to pretend to interpret things which faithful Christians have been wrestling with for decades and centuries. So here's the reason I want us to study Revelation. It's found in chapter 1, verse 3. This is what John wrote. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Isn't that amazing? Read these words, take them to heart, and you'll be blessed. With everything that's going on in these days, who knows, maybe, maybe this is the age. But regardless of whether Christ returns in our lifetime or tarries still longer, I would welcome more of his gracious blessing. How about you? 
So that's what I want us to do over the next seven weeks. I want to read from it and take it to heart. We're not going to study in the entire book of Revelation. I'm only an interim preacher here. We don't have a whole year together. But we're going to, we're going to stay in these seven churches of Revelation over these next seven weeks. And I, I'd encourage you, if you want to find a good study of the book of Revelation and continue it on on your own, I'd encourage you to do that. Maybe find someone to do it with. But what I want to do is to look at the message of these seven churches. And in particular, we're going to look at the way these Christians in this first century responded to Jesus and what Jesus had to say to them. And my hope and my prayer is that you and I will be encouraged, will be challenged, will be emboldened, will be convicted, and ultimately will be transformed in our study together. Now, that's a lot of introductory material. We don't do that every week, and we won't do that every week before we actually get to the text. But are you ready to dig in? So open your Bibles with me to the last book of the Bible. As you turn there, just a little note, okay, many times, and I know some of you are guilty of this, when you talk about Revelation, you refer to it as Revelations, okay? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have said Revelations chapter 1 verse such and such says? It's a single Revelation. So when you speak of Revelation, if you look in your Bible, unless you have a translation that's wacky, um, it should say revelation at the top. So that's a freebie today, by the way. Okay. So we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 2, okay? and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. These are the words of, of Jesus. Would you stand for this reading? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduringly patient and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. You may be seated. So the text here begins to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Pause there, and I want you to think for a few moments about Ephesus and the city and what we know about it. The city of Ephesus was the largest city of the Roman province of Asia. There were somewhere, scholars believe, between 250 and 400,000 people lived, who lived there. Now, that may seem small in comparison to, say, San Antonio or other major cities, but, but you have to understand this was a major city in its day. It was the center of commerce of the province because of a natural harbor that was there at the time, and it was also the only city that held the biannual Asian Games. Well, in the center of Ephesus stood one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. 
It was the size of a soccer field and had 127 columns that were 60 feet tall, 86 of which were overlaid with gold. Artemis was a female goddess whose image was thought to have been a meteor which resembled a many-breasted female figure that had crashed to the earth in Ephesus. So there was, in a, were, in addition to this temple, many prostitutes that were there. There was also an enormous library in Ephesus because in the ancient world, centers of commerce were also centers of thinking as many ideologies came into contact with each other there. The library had somewhere around 12,000 scrolls. Here's another interesting thing about this city. The area around the Temple of Artemis served as a sanctuary for criminals, for fugitives of the law. So picture Ephesus in this way. It's an intellectual city that prides itself on new ideas, new ways of thinking. It's obsessed with sex as temple prostitutes and brothels were the norm. In fact, it's, his um, archaeologist discovered a tunnel that led between a brothel and the library there. Fugitives brought lawlessness to its streets. Materialism and wealth were its gods as tourism and commerce thrived. Sounds a little like New Orleans, as I visited New Orleans recently to me. And yet, and I love a lot about New Orleans, by the way. I think I heard a sigh over there. I'm sorry if I offended any of you. Um, it was in this city that God chose to do an amazing work. It was to this city that Paul came in his missionary journeys. He spent more than three years there preaching, somewhere between two to three hours a day. If my math is correct, that's more than 3,000 hours. He taught in a theater where 25,000 people could be seated. In that theater, since then, the likes of Elton John, Diana Ross, and Sting have performed. This was an immoral place. And in this declining city, Christianity took a stronghold and the church began to grow. After the temple was destroyed in AD 70, and the divide between Judaism and Christianity was increasing, Ephesus became the epicenter for Christianity. It was then to Christians what you might say Rome is to Catholics today. It was important. And it's no wonder that the first message, the first letter, is written to the capital, as it were, of the Christian faith of that day. So let's look, think through that message together. Think back to the text with me. The letter isn't just written to the Ephesus, or Ephesus, Ephesians. It's addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, commentators have for years speculated about what that means. What does the word angel here mean? Some have suggested it's talking about the pastor of the church of Ephesus. But throughout the remainder of the book, every time the term angel is used, it's used to refer to an angelic being. If it's an angelic being, that means that God seems to have appointed an angel to watch over and guard this church. What's more, he holds them responsible for the life and the well-being of the church. Now, if that's the correct interpretation, wouldn't it be pretty amazing to consider that Calvary Hills Baptist Church might have an angel appointed to watch over us? And if it's not a heavenly being but a pastor, well, it just underscores the heavy responsibility that falls upon the men that occupy this role. So go back to the text with me. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the light that they contain. 
Interestingly, the Roman emperor Domitian, who was in charge at the time, declared himself to be a god as soon as he took the throne. See, most Roman emperors, they were designated as gods after they died. Well, Domitian, when he took the throne, said, no, I'm a god now. What's more, he went on to have several months named after him, and then he minted coins with his image on them. Now, we've got money in our pockets, probably, if you still carry cash, with some president's faces on them. But we made those, those uh, bills after the presidents died. Can you imagine a president who took office who immediately said, I want money minted with my face on it now? That's what Domitian did. And one of those coins had a picture of Domitian. You see it on the screen in front of you. He's sitting on a globe surrounded by seven stars. And in these words, it's as if Jesus is pointing at Domitian saying, you might picture yourself in that way, surrounded by the stars, but I created the stars. I hold them in my hand. So the stars, they're the churches. The lampstands are the light that those churches have. You probably recall in the Gospels that Jesus said he was the light of the world, and then he went on to say that you and I, as the church, as his followers, are the light of the world, that we're to let our light shine, that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We are to be shining in the darkness, and it's that light within us that causes us to shine that shows that we belong to Jesus. That's critical to understand because we're going to come back to this light in just a few moments, in a few verses. So the one who holds the stars in his hand, he walks, this text says, among the seven golden lampstands. This is none other than Jesus Christ. And he's walking around, taking inventory, inspecting, as it were, for those of you who are in the military, what's going on there. He's looking at their deeds and their hearts and he's giving an assessment of what he finds. What we see in this first message is that there are five commendations and one criticism. And your outlines, I've listed them as five praiseworthy characteristics of a church and one warning. And we begin with the words of praise because it's always easier to build someone up before you deliver a hard word of truth, isn't it? So look at what Jesus says in verses 2 to 3. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up from my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Here are the five praiseworthy characteristics of the church in Ephesus that I would suggest would also be characteristics that Jesus would commend in a church today. First, righteous works. This church has been up to a lot of good. They've been receiving and sending pastors. They've been toiling to spread the gospel to other places outside of the city of Ephesus. The church was initially an urban movement. In fact, the ancient word for pagan meant a villager, a rustic, a countryman. And so the church in Ephesus had been about the work of sending missionaries into those villages into those places in the countryside to evangelize and reach the lost. And Jesus seems to say, I know that you've been doing this. I know your righteous works, your righteous deeds. You've trained pastors. You've sent missionaries. You've cooked meals. You've clothed the homeless. You've cared for the orphans, the widows, the aliens, the strangers. Your deeds are admirable. I commend you for them. 
Church, we've got to forget that, or we must not forget that while Ephesians 2 verse 8 says that we are saved by grace through faith, and this not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means that while we are saved by grace, we're saved for works. We are saved to glorify God through the way that we live our lives out here on this earth. That means not just participating in random acts of kindness. It means getting serious about making a difference in your community and in your world. It means doing justice and loving mercy. A praiseworthy church is known for its righteous deeds in the community and the world around it. Can I ask you something, Christian? As your neighbors look at you, do they say, wow, not only does that person claim to be a Christian, but look at the things they do for the world. Look at how they're loving others. Look at their actions. They're serious about their faith. Jesus says to this church, I know your righteous works. I commend you for them. Second, here's the second praiseworthy characteristic of Ephesus, persistent hard work. The Greek here literally means patience. This is about not giving up. This church has worked hard, but they haven't lost the momentum. They've continued to press on even when there weren't enough volunteers to do the work. When there weren't enough funds to pay the bills, they kept on keeping on. They didn't shrink from responsibility. They didn't say it's someone else's turn. They bore the burden with determination and zeal. And Jesus says, I see your zeal. I see your determination and your patient endurance. Even when you're exhausted and you could have quit, you didn't. I commend you. Church, can I ask you, have you given up? Do you think it's someone else's turn to serve? You serve long enough. Someone else's turn to take care of the children's ministry. Someone else's turn to, to, to serve in the nursery. I know I'm getting a little close for comfort. Someone else's turn to serve on the mission team. Someone else's turn to lead worship, to be a greeter. You fill in the blank. A praiseworthy church is made up of Christians who persist in their hard work, who don't lose momentum in their pursuit of the gospel and its proclamation. Third, Jesus commends this church for its intolerance toward wicked and destructive people. Intolerance is an unpopular word these days, isn't it? Before you get on that bandwagon, that's not the wagon I'm going to get on today. We could, and that would be a whole other conversation but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus doesn't seem to be commending them for being intolerant of the sin in their communities. Now hear me, I'm not saying we ought to excuse sin or accept the ways of the world, but I do believe the church has in many cases become far too hateful to the degree that we're no longer a hospital for the sick. We need to be casting more nets and a few less stones. We need to be worrying about catching fish, not cleaning them the Holy Spirit's job to clean them. So there need to be a places in our pews for sinners, for you and I are great sinners ourselves. That means, and yes, I'm going to say it, our pews need to be open to members of the LGBTQ community. We need to love those folks. They shouldn't be turned away. Membership and leadership are different topics. I'm an interim preacher, so I can say this. Guess what? It they're different topics, and we need to hold to our doctrinal standards, absolutely. 
but we need to love sinners and we need to invite them into salvation so God can change their lives just as he is changing ours. So if it's not intolerance toward outsiders' sin, what is it? What Jesus seems to be commending this church for is its unwillingness to put up with those who desire to hurt others in the body. This seems to be about the church in Ephesus' intolerance of people who would come in like wolves in sheep's clothing and seek to harm the body of Christ. Jesus says, for your intolerance toward that type of behavior, toward wicked and destructive people in the church, I commend you. Fourth, Jesus commends them for their commitment to sound doctrine. Jesus says they've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and they found them to be false. This is about being biblically sound, doctrinally sound. Ephesus was a magnet for those claiming apostolic authority. They coveted what they believed to be power that was vested in men like Peter and Paul and John. But many of these people who came to Ephesus wanting to be apostles were teaching things that were inconsistent with biblical Christianity. Keep in mind, the church in Ephesus doesn't have the entirety of the Bible yet. They have bits and pieces. They've got Paul's letter. They've got the Old Testament. They've got scrolls. They, they, they have pieces of things that have come to them. And, and so there are many people who are coming in claiming to possess truth. And Jesus says, church at Ephesus, you've done a magnificent job at examining these false prophets and making sure that false doctrine that will lead my people astray doesn't make its way into your pulpit, into your classrooms, into your body. And for that, I commend you. And finally, the fifth praiseworthy characteristic is endurance through persecution. Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. We don't know for sure what the Ephesians were going through, what they were enduring, but it seems like some form of persecution had begun. It definitely was on the rise across the Roman Empire. By 70 AD, one Jewish community forced its members to take an oath cursing the name of Jesus. And so the protection that Christians had enjoyed as a part of the Jewish community from the law that insisted they worship the emperor was disintegrating. And there were pockets of physical persecution breaking out. What's more, banking was tied to the worship of the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. So there's a strong likelihood that these Christians' faith was beginning to cost them financially. Whatever the reason, Jesus says, you've been going through hardships for my name, and you've endured. You've you've been persecuted, and you've persevered. You've been taunted. It's cost you, and yet you haven't quit. In church at Ephesus, I'm proud of you. And I believe to churches around the globe today who have endured patiently through hardships, Jesus says, I commend you. What if Calvary Hills Baptist Church got a letter like this from Jesus today? Wouldn't that be great? Jesus says, I've noticed your deeds, your patience and your hard work, the way you don't tolerate those who want to harm others, the way your doctrine is sound and solid, you know the scriptures, and you've been willing to bear burdens and hardships for me. When the going gets tough for you because you're a Christian, you stick it out for all these things, Calvary Hills, I commend you. Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't know what that noise is. I don't think it's Jesus talking to us. I could get off on a tangent about an organ. I'm not going to go there. I had an organ. I am going to go there. (laughs) 
as a young pastor, I had an organist who was just obstinate and very difficult, and the organ was electric, and every so often, it would just flare up in the middle of a sermon and go crazy on me and make noise, and kind of became the joke of the church that the Holy Spirit was trying to get a hold of us in the midst of the messages. So while he deals with that, let's get back on. If you can not think about that um, and think about what I'm saying here, wouldn't it be amazing if we got a letter like that? And isn't that the kind of church that you want to belong to? So what's wrong with the church in Ephesus? Well, I mentioned there were five praiseworthy characteristics and only one criticism. It can't be that bad, can it? Not with a resume like the one that Ephesus has. Look with me at verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And their loyalty and their hatred for heresy and their biblical soundness, the church in Ephesus had developed a spirit of lovelessness. Now, scholars disagree on what this means. Some say it's about love for others. Others insist it's love for God. I don't think there's a reason why it can't be both. Old and New Testament scripture is clear. Jesus was clear. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But how can a church that looks so perfect have lost its love? How could a church that was so zealous about all the right things have stopped loving God and others? How could they lose the quality without which all other qualities are worthless? What's really at the center of attention is not the outward actions of this church, but the motivation behind those actions. Because as you've probably heard before, a person can do all the right things, but do them for all the wrong reasons. That seems to be the case in Ephesus. While they had succeeded in many areas, the maintenance of that success had become more important than the motivation for their service. Can I be real with you? As I read all the seven letters of Revelation, and as I have over the years, and I ask myself which one I might be most likely to receive, it's probably this one. And here's why. Because the longer a person serves, at least I find, the more a person studies, the more they become theologically astute, the greater the temptation and proclivity is to become unloving. How does that happen? Well, think of it like a marriage, if you would. Early on in a marriage, a couple just dotes over each other, right? They're anxious to get to know each other better. They spend time together learning about the other and how to please each other. But over time, they settle into routines. They become comfortable with one another. They figure out what makes the other person tick. They develop a system for doing things and getting along, and the romance tends to fade. The passion and the interest to get to know each other fade as well. And while the marriage contains the right actions, the motivation and the love can be lost. The spark can be extinguished. I think that's what Jesus may be talking about here. Jesus says your actions are fine. I don't have a problem with them. It's your hearts that I'm worried about. I don't see love. Calvary Hills, if we're not careful, we can become like the Ephesians. I'm going to skip the next point in your outlines and come back to it in a moment. But if, as I do, let me give you a, a few examples of ways that can happen. We can become like the Ephesians when we pit truth and love against each other. Some of you are grace people. 
You are encouraging and you are forgiving and you don't want to speak truth because you don't want to hurt others. And by doing so, you fail to challenge others to live holy lives. Others of you are truth people. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Those of you who are truth people probably be like, yes, I'm proud to be a truth person, right? You've got Bible verses on your gun belt. Be sure your sin will find you out. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. Do not be anxious about anything. And you use those verses as ammunition to confront the sin in others. The problem is you leave them bleeding and you fail to administer grace. Church truth and love are not meant to be pitted against each other. Love ought to be like an airbag for truth. We need to say the right things at the right times in the right ways with the right attitudes. We can't sacrifice truth at the altar of love or love at the altar of truth. We can also become like the Ephesians when the people around us and the communities in which we live become annoyances to us. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you are annoyed by your neighbors or your communities? You know what I mean. You smell the weed they smoke. I mean, literally, right? We've got neighbors in our neighborhood. I'll go out on the back patio sometimes, and I smell it in the air. Your neighbors smoke too much. They drink too much. They gossip. They're bad parents. Bad examples that to your family, you fill in the blank. And again, don't raise your hands, but how many of you are annoyed by your coworkers? They're lazy, they're self-centered, they're dishonest, they use vulgar language. Here's the problem with our attitudes much of the time toward non-Christians. Let me say this clearly. We expect them to behave like Christians. Should it surprise us that an unsaved person lives and acts like an unsaved person? Why then do we get so annoyed and show so much contempt for one who needs the gospel? Rather than showing contempt, shouldn't we be burdened by their desperation? Here's one more way I'd suggest we become like the Ephesians. It's when Jesus becomes more of a concept than a person. We attend worship and we sit through sermons and perhaps even serve in the church, but if we're not careful, our faith becomes a religion and Jesus becomes a concept to be studied rather than a person to be encountered. We serve a Savior who not only lives through his word, but is alive in his world. A living God who desires to take up residence in the innermost parts of our lives. Don't allow your faith to become a system of beliefs rather than a personal relationship with the living God. Church, are you still with me? I heard one. Are you still with me? Okay, good. (laughs) You had me worried there for a moment. Do you see how a church can seem to do all the right things and yet lose its way? More importantly, do you see yourself? In this passage, have you lost this love and fallen into one of these traps? To Ephesus and to you and I, Jesus says you can recover your lost love. It's not yet over. You are not a lost cause. Here's what he says in the first part of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Three simple things Jesus outlines to recover that love. Number one, remember. Remember when you were new Christians, when you were new followers. When you had a sparkle in your eye when you talked about Christ, remember when that faith was was so important to you that you burned with passion for Christ. You couldn't help but tell others about Christ. And if you can't remember that day, then maybe you don't really know him. Number two, repent. 
The word literally means to turn away from one thing and embark on another. You're headed north and you turn around and you head south. It means to seek forgiveness from God and to determine to live for him. To tell him you're sorry for trying to do all the right things without the motivation of love behind those actions. Some of us this morning need to fall on our knees and say, God, I've been doing the right things, but I've been doing them for the wrong reasons, and I've lost the love I once had for you and I had for others. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Remember, repent, finally return. Return to the things you did at first, Jesus says. What do you do when you were passionate about me? You probably spent time in prayer just learning to talk to me, to listen to me. You probably spent time reading my word, eagerly trying to learn and hear from me. You probably told others about me because I mattered so much to you. Like a new love, you wanted to show me off. Well, go back, Jesus says, and do those same things you did at first. In case you think this isn't really a big deal, and just in case the Ephesians thought it wasn't a big deal, that, yeah, so I'm not as loving as I used to be, but I'm still doing the right things, Jesus issues a dire warning. Look at the end of verse 5. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'm going to extinguish your light, Jesus says. If you're following along in your outlines, you can fill in this warning for all churches. It's a little further up in your outlines there. When we cease to love God and others, we cease being the church. Jesus says to the Ephesians and to us today, if you don't turn back to your first love, if you don't get your hearts beating for me and my Father and for those around you, again, I'm going to shut you down. Why? Because your witness is defective. It damages others. It hurts my kingdom in this world. Your lack of love for me and others is destructive, and I won't have it. There are other churches who can continue my mission. I don't need you. I want you, Ephesus, but I don't need you. And I'll come, and I'll remove your light. I'll shut your church down. As successful as you think it has been, it will be no more. Now, that ought to make the hair on the back of our neck stand up. You see, this church thought they were doing everything right, but their motivations were wrong, so they were at risk of losing everything. That ought to make any church sit up and take notice. This is nothing to be trifled with. I'm glad the passage doesn't end there. We could, we could end the sermon right there, and that would be highly convicting, and it ought to be. But Jesus goes on. He commends them for one more action, that of hating the works of the Nicolaitans. They may have been the descendants of Nicholas, one of the deacons that was ordained in Acts chapter 6, who, according to church history, had merged occultism and Christianity. And the Ephesians, with a commitment to sound doctrine we've already unpacked, wouldn't stand for those teachings. And Jesus commends them again. And then after mentioning them, he concludes with an encouraging promise. At the end of verse 7, we're told of a tree of life in the paradise of God. If you think back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden, you'll recall there was a tree of life. But Adam and Eve were banned from that garden and from the fruit of that tree because of their sin. In the city of Ephesus... Interestingly enough, in the center of the temple of Artemis, there was an ancient tree shrine with a tree. It was believed to be the place of salvation. It was to that tree that worshipers and tourists flocked for life. But Ephesian Christians knew that it could bring no actual life. 
Interestingly, when John penned these words, he had a choice for the word for tree. The normal word used for a tree in Greek was dendron, but there's another word, a word that meant wood, and a word that was used frequently for the cross. It was zulon. The Holy Spirit inspired John to use that word as he transcribed the letter from Jesus. To the one who overcomes, to the one who does all the right things for the right motives, inspired by love for God and each other, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the zulon of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Bible begins and ends with a tree in a garden. Jesus says to the one who lives out their salvation through righteous deeds, who persists in hard work, who won't tolerate wicked and destructive people in the church, who's committed to sound doctrine, who endures through persecution, and who through it all never loses his love for me and others, I will grant the right to eat of the tree of life in the garden because of the wood of Calvary. In the original fairy tale version of The Wizard of Oz, the tin woodman who had once been a real man was in love with a beautiful maiden and dreamed of marrying her. The witch hated their love, so she cast a spell on him so that one by one his limbs had to be replaced with artificial limbs. The tin limbs allowed him to work like a machine, so with a heart of love for his maiden and arms that never tired, he seemed destined to win over the witch's spell. The tin man said this, I thought I had beaten the wicked witch then, and I worked harder than ever, but I little knew how cruel my enemy could be. The wicked witch made tin man's axe slip and cut himself in half, and though a tinner was able to fasten him back together again, alas, he had no heart, so that he lost all his love for the girl and did not care whether he married her or not. Most of you know the rest of the story. Caught in a rainstorm, the tin man began to rust, remaining in that spot until Dorothy came all the way from Kansas to rescue him and begin his journey to Oz. In the book by Frank Baum, the tin man tells Dorothy, during the year I stood there, I had time to think that the greatest loss I had known was the loss of my heart. While I was in love, I was the happiest man on earth, but no one can love who has not a heart. Ladies and gentlemen, in closing this morning, can I ask you one of the most important questions anyone may ever ask you, are you in love with Jesus Christ? Or are you just going through the motion? Do you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? And do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? Or are you doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons? Would you pray for